Father, I think about the grave and the thrones and how every single person that has ever lived whether on the throne or whether alive eventually met death Jesus rose from the grave he did not stay there everyone else that has met the grave has stayed God, you have exalted him to to a place in heaven at your right hand with the name that is above every name. And he is the king who sits on the throne. And we all, we all bow the knee to you. You are worthy of it. No, no one else has sent their only son to live the life that we couldn't. In the face of our total rejection of your son and die willingly on our behalf, in our place to take your punishment and your wrath upon his shoulder though he deserved it deserved it not and then rise from the dead and intercede for us so that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved and then God you promise that all those who believe in you will also raise from the dead in the same manner, just like Jesus. God, we are unworthy of this. And we come together on these mornings. It is as one body with one voice and one heart through the spirit to worship you because you've given your son the preeminence of all things. So I pray that you would be satisfied and pleased by what you hear, that you'd be patient with us as we still struggle As we're still growing, we still need your forgiveness and your mercy. That you'd be with us this morning and you'd show us great things from your word. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. We pray all of this in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. There it is, the second time. We always need that second time. Get the blood pumping a little bit. You know, I'm curious. When you're filled with sorrow, no matter how small or big it is, what do you, what do, you do? How do you deal with that? Let, let's start with the small stuff, right? When, when maybe you've had a bad day, things didn't go the way you wanted it to, and you feel that very uncomfortable feeling of just being down and sad, how do you deal with it? Some of us distract ourselves and we can distract ourselves with many things. Some of us are the chip distraction people, right? You go to the chips. I myself am that guy. I love myself a good Lay's regular chip. And if I'm really sad, I'll make myself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to go along with it. And if I'm really like, you know, I'm going all in, a big, tall glass of milk. And what you do, here's what you do. You take the bite of the peanut butter and the jelly sandwich then you take, a, with it still in your mouth, you take the, the glass of milk, a swig, right? And you fill it to start to dissolve. And like right before you're even done, you like put the chip in your mouth too. Some of you are like, oh, but I'm like, listen, that salt, salty, sweet mixture together, it just wells up within, within me just this feeling of, of pleasure and comfort. I'm just like, you know what, God, you're good. And my problems start to melt away until that plate's gone in, in two minutes. 
right? And I'm thinking about the day. And now I'm feeling guilty of all the sugar and the carbs that I've ate, right? And then sorrow compounds upon it. Anybody else relate to that, right? Dealing with and coping with sorrow, right? We can laugh, but let's get real for a second. Life is filled with much sorrow. And there are many times in life when I'm talking the depths of grief and sorrow strike our hearts. Every single person is going to come into these moments of life multiple times, feeling great loss and great pain, great fear, great anxiety, great stress. In those moments, what do you look to? I should ask, in those moments, who do you look to for comfort? The scripture tells us that God is the God of all comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter one, and he comforts us in our affliction. And then he even gives a purpose to the pain that we're going through and promises that we're going through that so we can know that his comfort is better than any peanut butter and jelly sandwich on the, on the planet, anything else we might run to. His comfort's better. And then he tells us that I'm going to use your pain and how I've comforted you to comfort others that'll come along in life that you'll meet to comfort them with the same comfort I've been given you. Read 2 Corinthians 1 and you'll see how redundant that word is because God wants us to know that the comfort we're desperately looking for for our times of sorrow come from him. So turn to John 16 with me as we continue in real peace. You know, we're getting close to finishing up this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. And then we're going to go into chapter 17. We're actually going to read a very specific, detailed prayer of Jesus to his father. It's a beautiful thing. But we're getting close to wrapping up this conversation. And you're really going to see Jesus to start to bring this idea of peace and comfort to the disciples' hearts. Because let me remind you, when we started out, we began in the upper room and Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. He's instituting the Lord's Supper. They're taking the bread and the wine. And up to this point, the disciples are excited. They've been on this three-year ministry with Jesus. Things have been awesome. He's been doing miracles. And they're like, man, the Messiah's here. The King's here. Things are going great. Our time is coming. The exaltation of our King is coming, which means us with him. And then he starts to drop bombs on them. Stories of betrayal and denial and him dying and him leaving, right? And, and there's this theme of the disciples listening and sorrow filling their hearts. And Jesus then is starting to tell them things through chapter 14 all the way up to now to comfort their hearts. I want to give you perspective. I want you to see that this is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. And probably some of the hardest things that he said have been in the last few weeks where he talks about how I'm going to leave you and you're going to be in the world and the world is going to hate you because you believe in me. They hated me. And if they hate me, they're going to hate you. And then he gets even deeper into it. They're even going to kill you. I mean, put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, right? How, how, how uh, that peanut butter and jelly sandwich and chips, I'd be like slamming it into my face at that point. Like, I'm going to make the sorrow go away. I'm so sad. Grief, sorrow filling our hearts. Maybe it's moose track ice cream for some of you. Sorrow. This is where we are. Jesus said the helper is going to come. He has said it multiple times through these chapters, hinting and then being very overt uh, about this helper, the Holy Spirit that's coming to them. 
And he's really going to talk about this helper that's coming today. We're gonna see the comfort that's coming from the Holy Spirit to the disciples and the promise that Jesus is giving to them. So here's what we wanna do first. Let's, let's take our minds and our bodies back to this time we're there with the disciples, we're listening in, and at this moment we're gonna see Jesus x-ray the disciples' hearts. He x-rays their hearts, and what does he see in verse five of chapter 16? He x-rays their hearts and he sees this. He, but now... I am going, Jesus says, to him who sent me. And none of you ask, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. And we're talking about deep, deep sorrow. Jesus looks into the hearts. He can see it. He can see it on their face. He can see it on their shoulders. And he's the God of the universe. He can see into their hearts and he knows exactly what they're thinking and what they're feeling. And he says, listen, I've just told you that I'm leaving and going to the Father. None of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things, all of these things up to this point about him leaving, about the struggle, about the pain, about the world hating you, because I've said these things, sorrow has filled your hearts. Overwhelming sorrow is what Jesus sees when he looks on the x-ray. Now, let's stop here for a second. When Jesus says this, I'm going to him who sent me. He's talking about, I'm, I'm going back to where I came from, which is to the Father. This is what he's been saying then he says this, and none of you asked me, where are you going? This is a very interesting verse because if you read through it, you'll actually see two different times where two different disciples asked him, where are you going? So what is Jesus talking about when he says, none of you ask me, where, have you, where are you going? Well, if you go back and read where the disciples actually said it earlier, they didn't say it in the way that he meant it. Right, there's a difference between someone saying to you, hey, what you doing? Versus, what are you doing? One's rhetorical. One's not really asking for an answer. The other one is. Up to this point, yeah, the disciples have asked him, where are you going? But it's more in the attitude, in the expression of, what do you mean you're leaving? Where are you going? What, what do you think you're doing? We need you here. They're asking more of a way where they're only thinking about themselves and what this means for them and not thinking about what it means for Jesus. That's why Jesus says, I told you, I'm going to the Father. This is like a wonderful, beautiful, like best thing for me and best thing for you. And none of you are even inquisitively asking me, man, where are you going? Like explain that more. What do you mean? Oh, you're going to him? We're excited for you, Jesus. No, we're just sorrowful about us and that you're telling us that things aren't going the way that we wished and hoped and we're looking forward to them going. Remember we talked about expectations, how they become detrimental if they're not the right expectation. And so this is a little bit, this is a little bit of Jesus expressing the sorrow of his heart as he's sitting there with his disciples trying to explain to them what's really going on and tell them why they have no reason to be sorrowful, giving them every promise and every truth of scripture to tell them you have no reason to be sorrowful. And then what does he see as he says all these things and then he looks and he sees, wow, sorrow has filled their hearts. 
You know, sometimes even when Jesus is being a counselor and the goal is to prevent sorrow and it is sorrow, it doesn't mean that the counselor failed. It says something about what's going on in the heart of the person. He x-rays their heart. Sorrow has filled their heart because things aren't going the way they wanted it to go. But Jesus is then going to prescribe some medication for them. He's gonna prescribe some help. He wants to deal with their sorrow and he's gonna give it another effort, right? He said a lot of things to help with the sorrow. He's gonna do it again. He's like, he's still gonna pile on the comfort to see if that helps. Look what he says in verse seven. Nevertheless, I've said these things. Sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, even though I'm struggling, even though I'm hurting uh, and I'm the one going and going to die and I see that you're still not getting it, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, verse seven, he says. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The prescription of comfort to counteract the sorrow of the disciples is this promised Holy Spirit that is going to come to them. And look what he says there. He says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, listen, Jesus comes in and he sits here with us. Jesus is here, right here with us. One, we're all like, we're all like, we're on top of each other trying to get close to him, right? And we lunch with them, we hang out with them, and it's time for him to leave, there's not going to be really an indicator inside of our body that's going to say, this is a good thing. Yeah, we're glad you're leaving, Jesus. It was good to see you, touch you, be with you, hear your voice, see your face, and you're leaving. Now we're, we're cool with that. So we can sympathize, right? We can understand. We can understand the sorrow. But Jesus says to them, I'm promising you, I'm telling you the truth. Listen, listen, me going away, as good as it is to have me right next to you, I'm doing something and the Holy Spirit's gonna do something that's gonna be far better than anything you've experienced with me being next to you. Me being gone and the Spirit in you is far better than me being next to you. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. Right there, ding, 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 man. There's something super special about this Holy Spirit, about this helper, about this advocate, about this counselor that's coming. Radars should be going off, right? Sorrow has still filled their hearts, though. They're overcome with grief. Nevertheless, Jesus is still trying to comfort them as he is the one who is going to experience excruciating death. Can we just stop to appreciate the loving kindness of our Savior and how he takes care of us. The example of him taking care of doing, doing everything he can to help comfort his disciples, even when he is the one who is gonna experience all the pain. This is why he's exalted over all. No one like him. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's perfect. He's God. So let me ask this question then. We're gonna ask two questions then as Jesus is about to talk about the Holy Spirit. The question is this. What's so comforting about the Holy Spirit, right? If he's trying to tell them and counteract their sorrow with this promise and this truth, then what is so comforting about the Holy Spirit? And then we're gonna end with this question. How do we recognize the Holy Spirit? How do we know when he's speaking? But let's deal with this first question. What's so comforting about the Holy Spirit? So you're tracking with me, dealt with the sorrow, x-rayed the heart, prescribed it, with the Holy Spirit and a promise 
And now he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. So let's learn together. He says this in verse 8 concerning the Spirit. And when he comes, notice he says he constantly because the Holy Spirit is a person. It is not a thing. It is not an it. It is not a force. It is a person. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Why is the Holy Spirit and his arrival so comforting? One, because he, he will convict the world. Now, If you're anything like me, when you read this paragraph that Jesus just says, this gem-packed with all of these things, you're like, okay, I'm ready for it, and you read it, and you're like, what did he say? Well, let's look at it. We're going to walk through it. Verse 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world. Let's start with that word conviction. This is one of those words where English language doesn't encapsulate everything that this word means. The word conviction, to expose, to shine light on, to, as in a courtroom setting, a a judicial setting where you're prescribing guilt and proving someone to be wrong, to be guilty. This is is what he's trying to convey, convey here. The Holy Spirit, when he comes, he is going to convict the world. He's going to be the judge that stands over the world and sheds light and exposes and proves that the world is guilty. He will convict the world. And then he gives three things concerning this conviction that goes along with it. He says this, he will convict the world concerning righteousness I mean, uh, concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then he explains it a little bit. So let's go through it. He will convict the world of concerning sin, righteousness, and journeying. Verse 9, here we go. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So this promise and this comfort of the Spirit coming into the world and convicting the world concerning sin. And he says this, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit will come and show the world that unbelief, doubt and unbelief in God, in his son, is the sin that is at the root of every other sin. And the Spirit is going to be convicting the world of this. You and I are here today who confess and believe in Jesus. We have experienced that work of the Holy Spirit, have we not? Some point in our life, we heard the message that we do not believe and we're on our own path, going our own way, and you must believe in Jesus to be saved. And our hearts were pierced with conviction and we believed The Bible is very clear from the Old Testament to the New Testament that unbelief is at the core of the heart of sin. Let me take you back to the beginning in Genesis. God gave the command, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they ate. Okay, they disobeyed. No, they disobeyed because of something. They disobeyed because they doubted what God said. 
And why did they doubt what God said? Because an outside deception came in and they listened to the deception and the deception of the enemy. You'll not surely die for in the day that you eat of it, God knows you'll be just like him, right? Twisting of truth, deception, trickery that reached our ears, pierced into our hearts, caused doubt, which then welled up within a desire for stuff and for things that we never once had a desire for because we actually started to believe these things could satisfy us over God. So when Eve looked at the, the tree and she saw in a way that she never did before that the food was good and pleasing to the eye, she took and she ate. Why? And what's the problem there? Unbelief in the heart is what welled up in her. Is God really good? Does God really mean what he says? Is God really there? When God said this, did he really mean this? Swirled with deception. Unbelief welled up in the heart, which led us to sin. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Jesus said to the people when he came and they asked him what they should be doing to be doing the works of the Father. And Jesus said, here's the work that you should be doing, that you believe on the one whom they, he sent. Belief, God wants the world to believe in me. Let me give you an example of the Hebrews. As you know the story of Exodus when they wandered in the wilderness, unbelief was the issue of their heart says this in the book of Hebrews, looking back to the example of the people in the wilderness who perished, the author of Hebrews says this, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Let me read that again. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil heart unbelieving heart. You see where the evil and the sin is prescribed to? It's prescribed and it starts with this unbelief in God and who he is and what he said. And the people in the wilderness prove that as they constantly put God to the test, even after, after uh, miracle, after miracle, after miracle, still refused to believe and doubted God. Therefore, they're guilty of having an evil, unbelieving heart. And what does it do? Leading you to fall away from the living God. The Spirit comes into the world to convict the world concerning sin. What is sin? The greatest sin of all, where all sins originate, it's from this idea of unbelief. And specifically unbelief in what? Unbelief in Jesus Christ. And this is gonna be what the Spirit's gonna be working in the hearts of the world of people is to believe in him, to believe in Jesus. I wanna take you somewhere else in the book of John. You don't have to turn there, I just want you to listen. I want you to remember when Jesus went to Nicodemus, Nicodemus came to him by night and he was teaching a teacher of the law how things work. He talked about being born again. He talked about being uh, that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And, the, and, and Nicodemus is scratching his head trying to understand these things, which we're gonna see later is a work of the Holy Spirit and bringing us understanding and illumination. But Jesus reveals truth nevertheless, even though he struggles with it. We all know the verse in John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We normally stop there. Let me read you the rest. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Belief, unbelief. 
And the reason he has condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Put a fingerprint here, we'll come back to this. What's so comforting about the Holy Spirit? Well, he's gonna convict the world. He's gonna convict the world of sin. I'm gonna explain a little bit later why this is so comforting, because I know if you're like me, you're like, why is this comforting, Jesus? Why is this with your prescription? Why are you using this? Bear with me. The second thing is this, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness. And look what he says here, John 16. He says this in verse nine, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. This is the most confusing one. It's like, okay, the Spirit's gonna shine light or convict the world or expose the world as to what sin is, and then he's gonna expose the world or show to the world what righteousness is, and the reason he gives of how that's actually going to happen, and then he gives this reason, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. What? Okay, I was tracking with you until he said that. What is, what is it about Jesus leaving and going to the Father and them not seeing him anymore? What, what does that have to do with helping the world know what righteousness is? Well, let's take a step back. Let's get our minds wrapped around a little bit of, of, of how we need to be thinking about Jesus going to the Father. An obvious truth in scripture among Israel and the Jewish nation is the fact that no one can approach the Father because he dwells in unapproachable light and to go into his presence for a sinner, for someone who's not righteous, means certain death. So as Jesus is le actually leaving the world and going to the Father, going to his presence, sitting at the right hand of the Father, he is proving he is proving ultimately that what he said and who he was and what he did was the ultimate standard of righteousness. Someone may say this is right or this is wrong, but then they go into the presence of God and they die. You know that person was a sinner and could not approach God, but Jesus is able to pierce through and go back into the presence of the Father, sit at the right hand of the Father. Well, well everything that he said and he did was absolutely right and true because we know no one can leave and go to heaven and be with a father if they're not right. So the spirit is coming into the world to convict the world, make the world guilty of being unrighteous because of the known and obvious made standard of what righteousness is through Jesus. So we as believers, we know what righteousness is. We know that being conformed to his image is is the image of perfection and ultimate righteousness. And we know that when we go our own way and we try to find our own form of righteousness, we're missing the mark. We're taking the path of the sinner. We're taking the path that scripture says, there's a way that seems right in a man's eyes, but the end is death and destruction. The end of Jesus' life was exaltation being brought into the presence of the Father, sitting at his right hand. You wanna know what the standard of righteousness is? You look to Jesus. And this fact, this truth that is going to happen is what the world is going to be convicted by. So when the world is saying, no, 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 this is right. This is right. This is, this is how you live life. This is what's good and this is what's true. No, it's not. If it doesn't line up with what Jesus said and who Jesus was, it falls short of righteousness. So 
the world, all of us will stand before God and be labeled unrighteous by the ways we try to prove righteousness. His standard is righteous, is right and good. And the Spirit's coming in the world to convict the world of that. This is why we need Jesus. We need the propitiation of our sins. And the Bible says that he became sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We, we positionally, in our identity, take on his righteousness. Though we are not righteous in our actions and words and thoughts, and Jesus died a death of a sinner, though he never sinned, So he took on something that we deserve so we can take on something that he deserves even though we don't match up to it. But this is also now why it's so important to recognize the purpose that God has given every Christian before the foundations of the world that we we be conformed to the image of his son because now we have the Holy Spirit who has the power to actually start to convict and change the person So now believers, though we're still in the flesh and still struggling, can still on this earth manifest the righteousness of Christ and be the light in the world that he was and prove to the world this next part, that judgment is coming and they're falling short of it. The Spirit's coming into the world to convict the world concerning sin because of unbelief, unbelief in Jesus, concerning righteousness because he's at the Father proving that his standard of righteousness is the right way of life to go. Like he said earlier, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally this, he's coming to convict the world that judgment is sure and it's coming. Look what he says here. Concerning judgment, verse 11, because the ruler of this world is judged. Okay, help me understand that, Jasper. What what does this mean? The world knows what sin is, what righteousness is, and what judgment is, is because it's built into the fabric of our souls. It's in all of our movies. Actually, we can't write a story unless there's sin and righteousness and judgment, right? We, we, we just well up within our souls this understanding of what Romans 2 tells us, that God's written the law on our heart. We understand these things to the depths of our being, though we're constantly suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, as Roman tells us. The one thing we know, every person knows, is that wrongdoing must be judged. Sin must be punished Right? We spend all this time in courtrooms to, to get down to the matter of fact of who's wrong, who's right, who's innocent, who's guilty, and we cannot let the guilty go unpunished. Neither can God. But his desire to not let the guilty go unpunished is absolutely pure, perfect, and good. It never wanes, lacks. No one ever gets framed. No one ever gets left out. Everyone's included in it, and the judgment of God is coming on the world. And here's how you know that it's coming on the world because first and foremost, he has already judged the ruler of this world. He judged him when he cast him from heaven and threw him down into the earth. And Satan is the prince of the power of the air. The, 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 the world lies in the sway of the evil one, scripture tells us. And he's the ruler of this world. He's the one behind everything, working things out in life, the, the principalities and the powers of darkness behind the scenes that we can't see that are they're trying to use everything that we experience in, in the world to try to bring us to a place of unbelief where we doubt God, not listen to him, be distracted by him and not pay attention to him. 
And we know in scripture that he has already been judged. The book of Jude tells us that actually there are angels that have already been preserved in a place called Tartarus, which is a spiritual place, holding cell, waiting for the day of judgment. And so, so what does this have to do with the world though? Those who follow the ruler will meet the ruler's end. If the ruler of the world is judged, then all who follow his path will be judged as well. It's a promise and it's a guarantee that's coming into the world via the Holy Spirit that the world is gonna face judgment and no one's going to escape it. And remember, I told you to put a fingerprint in John chapter three, right? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him will not perish, have everlasting life. He said, he said the world is condemned because they do not believe and whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the only son of God. Verse 19, he says this, and this is the judgment Here's the judgment. The light has come into the world. The book of John at the very beginning says that Jesus is the light of men. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. The Holy Spirit comes into the world and continues this ministry of light that Jesus brought in. But Jesus was, was, came in the form of a man, one man. The Holy Spirit's gonna permeate everyone in every place omnipresently, omnisciently, going to be able to shine this light into the world that Jesus shined. And it's shown in darkness to help people see what the way is, to help people see what sin is, help people see what righteousness is, to help people know that, that judgment is coming. As John the Baptist came out of the wilderness and said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Time is running down. The kingdom of God, which means judgment is coming with it. There is time for the world to see the error of the ways, to get off the path that they're going, to follow Jesus, to put down their nets, to put down everything else, to lay everything else aside and follow this man, Jesus, who has proven to be the righteousness of God, to put their faith in him and escape this judgment that's coming. And you better believe and better know that it's coming because the rule of the world has already been judged and he's already been defeated with the death of Jesus on the cross and the book of Revelation has already been written so you and I can know as brothers and sisters no matter how evil the world gets no matter how bad it gets no matter how much they hate you and try to kill you their end is sure and it is coming and it will be complete and the end also tells us the prophecy the book of Revelation that in that day Hell and death and the enemy and all the evil, wicked spiritual beings and all the people who followed their way will be cast into a lake of fire that burns forever in a place that will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and pure, true justice will be brought once and for all. Why don't you bring that now, God? Because the spirit's in the world to convict the world because I'm willing that no one should perish and that all should come to repentance and that everyone to see that you can stop holding on to your pride and holding on to your own way and accept the righteousness of my son, believe in him, follow him, and live with me in pure expectation of the bliss and the joy and the pleasure and the comfort that's coming to you eternally in Jesus Christ and stop envying the world that is gonna perish, though they look like they're having net fun now for just a little bit. John 16, what's so comforting about the Holy Spirit? 
He's gonna convict the world of sin. But then look at this. He's going to guide us into all truth. All truth. He says this. I still have many things to say to you, verse 12, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus admitting, I know sorrow through your heart. I'm trying to give you the things you need, but I just, I can see you can't handle it. And then he says this. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. It's like Jesus saying, I'm not worried about you. I know you're worried about me leaving, but I know what's coming with the Holy Spirit, and I know just how, just how more advantageous it's gonna be for you than me here with you. And trust me, it would be cruel. It's almost like he's gonna be cruel for me to stay and prevent him from coming. I must go. You need the Holy Spirit. Jesus dies, he rises from the dead, he ascends to the Father, 40 days later the the day of Pentecost comes and Peter stands up and the Spirit's there with the people and it begins to fall on the people and you see the beginning of the church and you see ever since then the Holy Spirit has been in the world entering the hearts of everyone who believes in Jesus Christ and you see the Spirit guiding people into all truth. And you see the disciples when they walked with Jesus, it's like they couldn't get it. But once the Spirit came, it's like they spoke like men of wisdom, like they were Jesus himself, right? Because the Spirit was in them. What's so comforting about the Holy Spirit? I wanna, I wanna show you something. Uh, can you see it? I'm, I'm gonna put this on the screen. Can you see, it, 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 let's go to this next slide here. Can you see it? The Spirit will eradicate the two thoughts that debilitate us with apathy and fear. Here they are. I can't make a difference and I don't know what to say. He just told the disciples, the world's gonna hate you. I'm putting you in the world, in the midst of wolves, to shine light and darkness. Unless you think it's all on your shoulders, it's the spirit that's gonna come and convict the world of what sin is, what righteousness is, and what judgment is. Yes, you're gonna speak on behalf of me, but you don't have to worry about it like it's all on your shoulders. Don't you ever think that you can't make a difference. No, the spirit in you is gonna be everything you need. You can and you will. Remember what I said, abide in me, for without me you can do nothing. So go into the world, abide in me, and you trust me, it's not on your shoulders. But look at this next thing. Uh, I don't, I have no idea what I would even say. Anybody ever felt like that? The Holy Spirit's gonna be with you, and he's gonna guide you in all truth. All truth. He says this, For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. We're even told of Jesus in moments of life when you're before people and you see the hatred of their face, he says, do not worry about their faces and what to say, for I will give you the words in the moment. Yes, as we sit here, as we sit at home, and we think about terrifying scenarios, or we think about witnessing to our neighbor, or we think about doing what Jesus is saying, making us witnesses in the world for him, I'm like, man, I can't do that. I can't make a difference, and I have no idea what to say. Then we see the promises of Jesus permeating us and eradicating those two things that debilitate us with apathy and fear, or at least they should. And it's all coming from what? the Holy Spirit that's with you, who will guide you in all truth, and he will declare to you, and he always uses the word of God to help you understand. He'll be patient with you. He'll help you understand. He'll guide you and lead you, and in the moments that matter the most, he will give you the words to say. 
abide in Jesus, be with him, and understand and cling to the promise that it is better for you to be here in the world without Jesus beside you and the Holy Spirit inside of you. Let's answer this final question. Okay, how do I know when the Spirit's at work in me? That's a pretty good one, right? Okay, I, I, I see the comfort. I see how Jesus is trying to comfort the sorrow that they're feeling with the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit's gonna do on their behalf. But how do I know the Spirit's at work? This is a big one because this is where I think a lot of Christians get confused and I think where we place a lot of uh, uh, attention on the Holy Spirit that we shouldn't or we, we say the Holy Spirit's doing something that he's not doing. Here's the guide. He said, I've said these things to you because you can't bear them now. The Spirit of truth's coming. He's gonna guide you in all truth. But look at this. He will not speak on his own authority. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and just speak whatever he feels. The Holy Spirit will say he will hear and he will speak what he hears and he will declare to you the things that are to come specifically very specifically to these disciples about what's coming in the future book of revelation being like the the cap that brought it in so now you know what's to come what to expect you have this completed thing you know what's coming but look at verse 14 here's the big one he will glorify me. The Holy Spirit will glorify me. He's speaking, not on his own authority, but what he hears, he declares. He will glorify me, but then listen to this. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You know the Spirit's working when Jesus Christ is being exalted when he is being glorified and when the purpose of the moving of the Holy Spirit of what you think might be the Holy Spirit in your life is leading you to a deeper, greater appreciation, honor and praise of the man, Jesus Christ and his words, then you know this is the Holy Spirit because he says, I do not speak them on authority, I bring whose words? Jesus' words. Where are Jesus' words here? Many other distracting words of deception out there. Do not listen to them. Devote yourself to this. And the Holy Spirit will use this because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But these are Jesus' words. He takes what is Jesus and he speaks them to you. And Jesus says, what the Father has, all that the Father has is mine. It's been given to me. Colossians 1 says that Jesus has been given the preeminence of all things. That all things were made by him, for him, through him, and to him so that he should have the preeminence and he is the head of the body, the church. And so the Holy Spirit is moving in our life when he is is bringing through the words of Jesus into our heart and it is changing us and it is motivating us and bringing us to a place where Jesus Christ is being exalted. I think sometimes we, I hear people saying like, man, we don't focus on the Holy Spirit enough. But if we did focus on the Holy Spirit, you know what we'd find out? That he wants us to focus on Jesus His goal is not to exalt himself. His goal is to come and always, always make you know, feel, and focus on Jesus, his person, and his words. That's why our foundation is Jesus Christ, the word of God, here at Summit. Everything the Spirit does is through, for, and from Jesus Christ, who has been given the preeminence of all things. Many different areas of our life where we experience sorrow. I don't know where you are. The sorrow that you feel, is it in relation to something in life not going your way? 
I mean, it's real sorrow. It's real pain. There's a, a meta narrative that's going on here that I want to end with and then pray. And it's this. Jesus said, when you pray, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, implying that I believe that what God has and what God wants and what God's doing in my life and what he wants to use me for is far better than anything that I could conjure up in my mind or I could imagine. And Jesus, as he's sweating drops of blood in the very few more moments as his disciples are to sleep and he knows what's coming, he says, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, your will be done, Father. At the heart of this is a message where God is speaking to us. Are you going to trust me with your life? Are you going to allow my words that are meant to comfort you to actually give you comfort, to pierce through your expectations, to pierce through your wants and desires, and, and you surrender to what I have for your life? And what I have for your life is always going to be good, and it's always going to involve yielding to my spirit and exalting Jesus Christ in every aspect of your life. You trust me. You let me comfort you in these moments. Know that I'm with you always to the ends of the earth, wherever you go, and I love you. Let's pray. Father, God, we are 100% dependent on you. I feel like maybe there's someone here, multiple people here who've just overcome with sorrow, overcome with the way life is going or the way that it's not going, overcome with the enemy's lies, somehow feeling like you have left them or you don't care for them. God, through your word and through your Holy Spirit that does the work in our hearts that we can't do, would you, would you lift my brother or sister's soul and to be overcome with the supernatural peace that passes understanding through your spirit and you would let them feel that in the moment and know once again for the 30th or 100th time that you love them, that you're with them and that you will carry them through all of life. They just need to trust and surrender. May that be true for all of us. Encourage us in these moments. Holy Spirit, guide us in all truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.